Welcome to the Axioms of Liberty podcast, where we dive deep into the philosophies of axiomatic truths in order for you to help build a better foundation to understand your world. And today is Memorial Day. And on this auspicious of Memorial Days, I believe we shall cover today's read will be Hans Hermann Hoppe's The Myth of National Defense. As there are just so many people that we use this day to try to celebrate our fellow countrymen's service into the service industry of, you know, doing our government's bidding, which is killing other people for the sake of furthering the hegemony of the petrodollar, which is, I think, beyond a disgusting thing to celebrate, regardless for whatever reason it may be. Yes, you went into the military. Yes, you fought for the country, but you did so willingly. There are people who have lost their lives fighting this same and perpetuating this sick mental illness that we need to have national pride and serving in your military is an honor. And, you know, this romanticized nonsense that has been thrown through society is part of the sickness of statism we need to uproot this entire tree at its base and stop this nonsense of i serve therefore i am owed something i serve therefore i am holier than thou and i know that there are people out there who think do not think like this but for the most part there are people who believe that because you serve, you deserve some type of respect when you as an individual do some of the most heinous crimes ever committed to fellow humans under the guise of I'm just doing my job. I'm just doing what the government told me to do. And most people that join the military are the most lowestly economically viable humans in society that's the whole reason why they go to the government to become military peoples because the government provides for them shelter food education there are these reasons that these people would never have the economic ability to even try to learn these things or have these things because of the economic issues the government itself perpetuates to begin with like the only reason why the military has such a ginormous number of people going into it, that funnel, is because of the economic woes the government enforces upon everyone. So with that being the basis and the foundation for this celebratory event that's called Memorial Day, I believe this book, it's actually a book, it's like 400 pages long. So we're going to break this up into a couple episodes because it's going to be a really long read. But it's one that I believe is worth reading. And with that, let's get into the read. The Myth of National Defense. Essays on the Theory and History of Security Production. By Hans Hermann Hoppe. Introduction. In the American Declaration of Independence, Thomas Jefferson affirmed, these truths to be self-evidence, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with inalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, that to secure these rights, governments are instituted among men, deriving their just powers from the consent of the governed, that whenever any form of government becomes destructive of these ends, it is of the right of the people to all alter or abolish it, and to institute new government, laying its foundation on such principles, and organizing its powers in such form as to them shall seem most likely to affect their safety and happiness. Prudence indeed will dictate that governments long established should not be changed for light and transient causes, and accordingly all experience has shown that mankind are mere disposed to suffer while evils are sufferable than to right themselves by abolishing the forms to which they are accustomed 
But when a long train of abuses and usurpations pursuing invariably the same object evens is a design to reduce them under absolute despotism, it is in with their right, it is their duty to throw off such a government and to provide new guards for their future security. More than 200 years after the Declaration of Independence, it seems appropriate to raise the question whether governments have in fact done what they were even designed to do, or if experience or theory has provided us with grounds to consider other possibly even more effective guards for our future security. The present volume aims to provide an answer to this fundamental question. In fact, this question has recently assumed new urgency through the events of September 11, 2001. Governments are supposed to protect us from terrorism, yet what has been the U.S. government's role in the terrorist attacks of the World Trade Center and the Pentagon? The U.S. government commands a defense budget of $400 billion per annum, a sum equal to the combined annual defense budgets of the next 24 biggest government spenders. It employs a worldwide network of spies and informants. However, it is unable to prevent commercial airliners from being hijacked and used as missiles against prominent civilian and military targets. Worse off, the U.S. government did not only fail to prevent the disaster of September 11th, it actually contributed to the likelihood of such an event. In pursuing an intravenous foreign policy taking the form of economic sanctions, troops stationed in more than 100 countries, relentless bombings propping up despotic regimes, taking sides in irresolvable land and ethnic disputes, and otherwise attempting political and military management of whole areas of the globe, the government provided the very motivation for foreign terrorists and made the U.S. their prime target. Moreover, how is it possible that men armed with no more than box cutters could inflict the da terrible damage they did? Obviously, this was possible only because the government prohibited the airlines and pilots from protecting their own property by force of arms, thus rendering every commercial airline vulnerable and unprotected against hijackers. A $50 pistol in the cockpit could have done what $400 billion in the hands of government was unable to do. And what was the lesson drawn from such failures? In the aftermath of the events, the U.S. foreign policy became even more aggressively interventionist and threatening. The U.S. military overthrew the Afghani government that was said to be harboring the terrorist mastermind Osama bin Laden. In the course of this, thousands of innocent civilians were killed as collateral damage. But bin Laden was not captured or punished to this day almost two years after the attacks, and once a U.S.-approved government had been installed in Afghanistan, the U.S. government turned its attention to wars against other enemy states, in particular Iraq, with its huge oil reserves. The U.S. refused to rule out the employment of nuclear weapons against enemy regimes. No doubt, this policy helped to further increase the number of recruits into the ranks of people willing to use extreme violence against the U.S. as a means of retribution. At the same time, domestically the government used the crisis which it had helped to provoke to further increase its own power at the expense of the people's liberty and property rights. Government spending, in particular on defense, was vastly increased and a new government department for homeland security was created. Airport security was taken over by the federal government and government bureaucrats, and decisive steps toward a complete electronic citizen surveillance system was taken. Truly then, the current events cry out for systematic rethinking of the issues of defense and security and the respective roles of government, the market, and society in providing them. Two of the most widely accepted propositions among political economists and political philosophers are the following. First, Every monopoly is a bad monopoly from the viewpoint of consumers. Monopoly is here is understood in its classical sense as an exclusive privilege granted to a single producer of a commodity or service, i.e. as the absence of free entry into a particular line of production. In other words, only one agency. A may produce a given good X. Any such monopolist is bad for consumers because... Shielded from potential new entrants into his area of production, the price of his product X will be higher and the quality of X will also be lower otherwise. Second, the production of security must be undertaken by and is the primary function of government. 
Here, security is understood in the wide sense adopted in the Declaration of Independence as the protection of life, property, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness from domestic violence, including crime, as well as external foreign aggression of war. In accordance with the generally accepted terminology, government is defined as a territorial monopoly of law and order, the ultimate decision-maker and enforcer. That both propositions are clearly incompatible has rarely caused concern among economists and philosophers, and in so far as it has, the typical reaction has been one of taking exception to the first proposition rather than the second. The contributors to this volume challenge this orthodox view and offer both empirical and theoretical support to the contrary thesis, that it is the second proposition, not the first, which is false and ought right be rejected. As far as empirical and historical evidence is concerned, proponents of the orthodox view face obvious embarrassment. The recently ended 20th century was characterized by a level of human rights violations unparalleled in all of human history. In his book, Death by Government, Rudolf Rommel estimates that some 170 million government-caused deaths in the 20th century. The historical evidence appears to indicate that rather than protecting life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness of their citizens, governments must be considered the greatest threat to human security. Proponents of the orthodox view, willing to compromise the first thesis regarding the evil of monopoly in order to maintain the second concerning the necessary state of government, cannot entirely ignore the seemingly overwhelmingly evidence to the contrary. If they wish to rescue from refutation the thesis that government is indispensable for the provision of law and order, they must revise the second thesis. Experience shows that some states are aggressors, not protectors. Thus, if one is not to discard the second thesis altogether, its further specification is required. It is only possible to claim that some states protect. Accordingly, rather than faulting government as such for the dismal security record in particular during the past century, several attempts have been made to explain this record as a result of specific forms of government. Numerous political scientists, including aforementioned Rummel, have tried to show by various statistical means that it is the absence of de democracy which explains these anomalies of the 20th century. Admittedly, democracies go to war against non-democratic regimes, but supposedly not against other democracies. Hence, it would seem to follow, and this thesis has in the meantime become a part of American neoconservative folklore, that once the Wilsonian dream of making the world safe for democracy has been achieved, eternal peace and security will be accomplished. In a similar vein, political economists such as James Buchanan and the School of Constitutional Economics have suggested that the admittedly miserable record of governments concerning the provision of internal and external security can be systematically improved by means of constitutional reforms aimed at the strict limitation of governmental powers. Both of these explanations are scrutinized and rejected in this volume. As for the thesis of the peaceful nature of democracy, several contributors note that in accordance with military historians such as J.F.C. Fuller and M. Howard, it rests on a rather selective and even earnest reading of the historical record. Let me mention only two such misreadings. First, how can this thesis account for seemingly obvious counterexample such as the American War of Southern Independence, the war between the states, with its until then unparalleled brutality. Answer. By excluding and ignoring it or downplaying its significance. Second. Proponents of this peaceful democracy thesis typically support their claim by classifying traditional monarchies and modern dictatorships as autocratic and non-democratic and contrasting both to what they classify as genuine democracies. Yet historically, and if any grouping must be done at all, it is democracy and dictatorship that should be grouped together. Traditional monarchies only resemble dictatorships superficially. Instead, dictatorships are a regular outgrowth of mass democracy. Lenin, Stalin, Hitler, and Mao 
or distinctly democratic rulers as compared to the former emperors of Russia, Germany, Austria, and China. Indeed, Lenin and Stalin, Hitler and Mao, and most of all their smaller and lesser known successors were outspoken in their hatred of everything monarchy and aristocratic. They knew that they owed their rise to the democratic mass politics and they employed democratic politics, elections, referenda, mass rallies, mass media propaganda, etc. throughout their reign. On the other hand, as for the proposal of constitutional reforms aimed at limiting state power, several contributors to this volume explain that any such attempts that must be considered futile and ineffective if and insofar as the interpretation and the enforcement of such limitations is left to government itself or to one of its organs, such as the governmental Supreme Court. See more below. More convincing to the contributors of this volume appears a third thesis advanced by the economist Ludwig von Mises, which can and may be considered a combination of the above. Mises asserts that in order to fulfill its primary function as a provider of security, the government must satisfy two conditions. It must be democratically organized and it must permit unlimited secession in principle. Quote, Whenever the inhabitants of a particular territory, whether it be a single village, a whole district, or a series of adjacent districts, make it known by a freely conducted plebiscite that they no longer wish to remain united to the state to which they belong at a time, their wishes are to be respected and complied with. There is this only feasible and effective way of preventing revolutions and international wars. One obvious attraction of this thesis is that it can account for the events of the American War of Southern Independence. Thus, until 1861, it was generally taken for granted in the U.S. that a right to secession even existed, and that the Union was nothing but a voluntary association of independent states. But when the desire for unrestricted right to secede was no longer respected, the state turned from protector to aggressor. Mises' thesis is according considerable attention in this volume, and the role of secession as a means for limiting or escaping government depredation is emphasized repeatedly. However, in requiring the protective state to allow unlimited secession from its jurisdiction, Mises' explanation essentially renders the state a voluntary membership organization, with taxes amounting to voluntary paid or withheld for membership dues. With an unlimited right to secession, even at the level of the individual household, the government is no longer a state, but a club. Hence, strictly speaking, Mises' thesis must be considered a rejection of Proposition 2 rather than merely its revision. The contributors to this volume concur with this judgment, not only for empirical reasons, but even more so for the theoretical ones. Every attempt to explain the dismal performance of government's states, coal providers of security, as inherent in the nature of the state government, must begin with the precise definition of state. The definition of the state adopted throughout this volume is uncontroversial. It corresponds closely to that proposed by Thomas Hobbes and adopted to this day by countless political philosophers and economists. Briefly, Hobbes argued that in the state of nature, men would constantly be at each other's throats. Each individual, left to his own devices and provisions, would spend too little on his own defense. Hence, permanent interpersonal warfare would result. The solution to this presumably intolerable situation, according to Hobbes and his followers, is the institution of state in order to institute peaceful cooperation, security among themselves. Two individuals, A and B, require a third independent party, S, as ultimate judge and peacemaker. However, this third party, S, is not just another individual, and the good provided by S, that of security, is not just another private good. Rather, S is a sovereign, and that has as such two unique powers. On one hand, S can insist that he has subjects, A and B, not seek protection from anyone but him. That is, S is a compulsory to territorial monopolist of protection and ultimate decision-making jurisdiction. On the other hand, S can determine unilaterally, without unanimous consent, how much A and B must spend on its own security. That is, S has the power to impose taxes, 
in order to provide the security collectively. Based on this definition of government as a compulsory territorial monopolist of protection and jurisdiction, equipped with the power to tax without unanimous consent, the contributors to this volume argue that, regardless of whether such a government is a monarchy, democracy, dictatorship, or any notion of limiting its power and safeguarding individual life, liberty, and property, must be deemed illusory. Under monopolistic auspices of the price of justice and protection must rise and its quality must fall. A tax-funded protection agency, it is pointed out, is a contradiction in terms. It is expropriating property, protection, and can only lead to ever more taxes and less protection. In fact, even if a state limited its activities exclusively to the protection of life, liberty, and property, as a protective state a la Jefferson would do, the further question of how much security to provide would arise. Motivated like everyone else by self-interest and the distuility of labor, but with the unique power of tax without consent, a government's answer will always be the same. To maximize the expenditures on protection and almost all of the nation's wealth can be consumed by the cost of protection and at the same time to minimize the production of protection. Furthermore, a monopoly of jurisdiction must lead to a deterioration in the quality of justice and protection. If one can appeal only to the state for justice and protection, justice and protection will be distorted in favor of government. Constitutions and Supreme Courts, notwithstanding, after all, constitutions and Supreme Courts, state constitutions and courts, and whatever limitations to government action they might contain is determined by agents of the very same institution. Accordingly, the definitions of life, liberty, and property, and their protection will continually be altered and the range of jurisdiction expanded to the state's advantage. The first person to provide systematic explanation for the apparent failure of governments as security producers along the above sketched lines was Gustave de Mololore in 1818-1912, a prominent Belgian-born French economist, student of Jean-Baptiste and teacher of Wilfrede Parteiro, and for several decades the editor of the Journal des Economistes, the professional journal of the French Economic Association, the Société des Economiques Politiques de Molorene's central argument was laid out in his article De la Production de la Sécurité of February 1849. The argument is worth quoting because of its theoretical rigor and its seemingly visionary foresight. If there is one well-established truth in political economy, it is this, that in all cases, for all commodities that serve to provide for the tangible or intangible needs of consumers, it is in the consumer's best interest that the labor and trade remain free, because this freedom of labor and trade have as their necessary and permanent result the maximum reduction of price, and this that the interests of the consumer of any commodity whatsoever should always prevail over the interests of the producer. Now in pursuing these principles, one arrives at the rigorous conclusion that the production of security should, in the interest of consumers of this intangible commodity, remain subject to the law of free competition. Hence it follows that no government should have the right to prevent another government from going into competition with it, or require consumers of security to come exclusively to it for this commodity. Either this is logically true, or else the principles on which economic science is based are invalid. De Morlerani then predicted what would happen if the production of security is monopolized. If, on the contrary, the consumer is not free to buy security whenever he pleases, you forthwith see open up a large profession dedicated to arbitrariness and bad management. Justice becomes slow and costly. The police vexatious. Individual liberty is no longer respected. The price of security is abusively inflated and inequitably proportioned, according to the power and influence of this class of consumers. 
Nearly all contributors to this volume pay explicit tribute to Molorani's path-breaking theoretical insight. Hence, the present volume is dedicated to the memory of Gustave de Molorani. If Molorani's explanation of this dismal performance of government as security provider by the nature of government quo compulsory territorial monopolist of law and order is accepted, however, then the question of alternatives arise. Accordingly, the bulk of this volume consists of contributions to this quest for private and voluntary market-produced alternatives to the failed and fundamentally flawed system of state protection. How could and would an alternative system of freely competing security producers work? Based on historical evidence and economical logic, how effective are private alternatives, such as mercenaries, guerrillas, militias, partisans, or even privateers? What are the consequences of free proliferation of weapons in a particular of nuclear arms? What is the role in ideology and public opinion in the defense of war? What type of good is defense, a private or is it a public good? Can proactive defense be provided freely competing and finance insurance agencies? How would the logic of competitive insurance protection differ from the monopolistic state protection we have currently? How can the transition from a system of monopolistic to competitive security production be achieved? What is the role of secession in this process? How can state-free societies, natural orders, possibly defend themselves against state attacks and invasions? These are the central questions addressed and answered in this present volume by an international assembly of contributors from philosophy, economics, history, sociology, and political science. The contributions to Section 1 on state-making and war-making set the stage historically and conceptually. Marchio Bassiani and Carlo Lottadori locate the topic and theme of the volume in history and the history of political thought. They emphasize the historical modernity of the institution of a state. States have not always existed contrary to popular belief, and direct particular attention to medieval feudal Europe as an example of a society without state, from which valuable insights regarding the present and its possible paths of transformation can be gained. They explained the ideological revolution associated with such names as Machiavelli, Bodine, Hobbes, and Rassio that supported and led up to the rise of the state. They reviewed the rise of the liberal libertarian ideological opposition to statism, association in particular with the names of Maliani in the 19th century, Rothbard in the 20th, they note the importance of European realism, i.e. the elite social theorists such as G. Moscova, V. Pareto, and R. Michaels in Italy and Carl Schmitt in Germany for a correct understanding of the non-neutral nature of the state and sovereignty, and they explore the prospects for liberty and the protection in the current world torn between tendency toward political centralization, a one-world order, and an opposite tendency towards decentralization and secession. Murray Rothbard, the author of the second contribution to Section 1, is the most important 20th century disciple of Molorani in synthesizing Molorani's monopoly, or rather anti-monopoly theory, with Ludwig von Mises' neo-Austrian systems of free market economics praxeology, and nature law ethics. Rothbard created a grand new anti-statist theoretical system of Austro-libertarianism. As they were, Molirani, most contributors to this volume have been profoundly influenced by Rothbard and his system. In his contribution to this volume, published originally in 1963 and reprinted here with the permission of the Ludwig von Mises Institute, Rothbard introduced the conceptual and terminological distinctions fundamental to all of the following. He clarifies the meaning of property, aggression, crime, self-defense, punishment, state, peace, war, just and unjust, revolution, imperialism, neutrality, isolationism, and explains the inherent aggressive nature of the state, i.e. the indissoluble link between war-making and state-making. The contributions to Section 2 focus on the subject of government forms of war and strategy. Eric von Kulten-Leden, in the last article completed before his death, presents a sweeping portrait of the European history and the role of monarchy and the Christian kings in the European Christian worldview. The king, 
was seen as a part of a natural, quasi-familiar, hierarchical, or vertical social order of God, the Father in heaven, the Holy Father in Rome, and the King as the Father of the Fatherland, and Father as the King in the family. He describes the gradual deconstruction of this vertical worldview and its displacement, beginning with the French Revolution and completed with World War I and II by a new egalitarian or horizontal outlook incompatible with monarchy and kings. He identifies democracy, majority rule, socialism, international and national, and popular dictatorship as expressions of this new horizontal worldview. Furthermore, he provides ample historic illustration of how the transformation from monarchy to democracy changed the conduct of war from limited warfare to total war. Gerard Radicinski, in his wide-ranging essay, bolsters Kenneth Ledin's case against democracy, following Anthony Deshay, and Radzinski begins with a detailed analysis of the economics and politics of major democracy and refutes as illusory and impossible the claims of constitutional economists such as James Buchanan. A discussion of the thesis, democracies are more peaceful, occupies the center of his chapter based on analytical considerations and detailed historical evidence. Radzinski rejects the thesis. Further, he identifies the thesis that democracies do not make war with each other as a cornerstone for the New World Order crowd. The U.S. imperialism and hegemony, he concludes, with a few game-theoretical considerations regarding the possibility of private defense coalitions and some remarks on the likelihood of the decline and demise of the state. Bertand provides an economic and conceptual formalistic game-theoretical explanation of the efforts and prospects of government policies and treaties concerning the non-proliferation of nuclear weapons. In accordance with the standard economic cartel theory, Bertand argues that any such agreements are bound to fail due to external and internal pressure. The cartel members cannot lastingly prevent non-member countries from developing their own nuclear weapons independently. And within the cartel, each member has a constant incentive to cheat Moreover, Buchanan argues that even if a cartel agreement could be maintained and enforced, this would still be a bad idea. The world is made less safe rather than more. So, when a single country dominates in nuclear possession and enforcement, the U.S. retains a monopoly on nuclear dissuasion and plays the part of world enforcer excluding international exchanges for countries seeking nuclear weapons. Such a proposition is costly, and the U.S. has no legitimate claim to even have such a role. The contributions to Section 3 review the historical record of private alternatives to state defense and warfare. Joseph Stormberg considers the example of professional standing armies commanded by aristocrat officers. He looks at the experience with mercenary armies in the Renaissance Italy. He discusses the role of a militia in Republican theory and practice from ancient Greece and Rome to the United States and Switzerland. Special attention is given to guerrilla warfare. Its essential defensive nature is explained and its role in the American Revolution. In the War for Southern Independence and in the Second Anglo-Boer War is discussed. Based on this evidence, Stormberg suggests as a solution to the problem of defense protection come from a combination of voluntary militias Inspired, if possible, by a unifying ideology or faith, the modern mercenaries, in the form of professional insurance protection com companies, both steeped in the theory and practice of guerrilla warfare. Larry Secrest opens his contribution with a brief discussion of the nature of good defense and argues that defense is distinctly private good, while national defense is an imaginary one. He then applies these theoretical considerations to the subject of naval warfare. In particular, he provides a detailed survey of privateering as a form of naval warfare conducted by privately owned ships from the 12th to 19th centuries. Secrest explains how privateers operated and legal customs that grew up around them and how remarkably effective and profitable these options were. Finally, as to why the practice of privateering declined during the 19th century, Secrest argues that he has no technological reasons. To the contrary, privateering died out because it was too effective 
and threaten the jobs of the regular state natives. Jeffrey Roger Hummel begins with a discussion of the anthropological preconditions of state formation and the reasons for the historical triumph of states over stateless societies. He explores the reasons, population size, geography, political decentralization, wealth, and technology. For the success of some states and world regions and the failure of others, in particular, Hummel investigates and emphasizes the importance of ideas and ideological convictions of motivation and morale in war and defense. Finally, he ponders the ideological requirements of liberating oneself from the macro-partisism of one's own state and the process specs of defending a free territory against the potential aggression of another foreign state. Hummel expresses considerable optimism regarding the effectiveness of such a defense because free societies will be wealthier and technologically more advanced than a status society, but cautious that the maintenance of a free society rather than a regression to statism, requires eternal ideological vigilance on the part of the public. The final section, section 4, is dedicated to the theory of private security production and its various practical applications. In his contribution, Walter Block argues that to claim that a tax-collecting government can legitimately protect its citizens against aggression is a contradict oneself. Since an entity starts off the entire process by doing the very opposite of protecting those under its control, in support of this claim, Bloch reviews, analyzes, and refutes the entire panoply of status arguments, the prisoner's dilemma, the free rider, the externality, and the public good thesis in favor of the national defense. Bloch explains, is defense of private property and as private as private property? Lastly, he discussed the thesis, popular especially in public choice and constitutional economic circles, that states are forms of clubs and clubs form states, and he concurs with Joseph Schumpter's verdict that this thesis only proves how far removed this part of social sciences is from the scientific habits of the mind. In my own contribution to this volume, I open with the reconstruction of Hobbesian myth of collective security and its empirical and logical refutation. He then proceeds to a detailed analysis of risk, property, and insurance. He comments on the arbitrariness of national borders and hence of national defense, in contrast to the national borders of private property and the defense of such borders. He provides a comparative analysis of insurance protection versus state protection and contrasts the logic of state warfare to that of freely financed protection agencies. Finally, Hopp points out that insurance agencies, in contrast to states, will not disarm those that they protect, and he addresses the question of how a free and armed society, in conjunction with professional protection insurance agencies, would likely go about defending itself against state aggression. Guido Hulsman, in the final contribution to this volume, deals with the secession as a means of establishing a private property order and assuming effective protection. He discusses the nature of secession and its comparative advantages as compared to other forms of political reform. After examining the conditions that must be met for secession to be successful, Heelman turns to the key problem of secessionist movements, defense against the government from which they are seceding. He argues that secessionist defense organizations must themselves be run on the basis of private property principles to ensure that the political goal of libertarian secession be reached and that its military effectiveness be as high as possible. Through the implications of his arguments made in this volume are radical and sweeping. The principles are quite simple at the root. In economics, the contributors seek the consistent application of market theory not its arbitrary exclusion from whole areas of life, such that it applies to the delivery of goods and services associated with security and defense. In politics, the contributors seek only the application of the principle Jefferson presented in the Declaration of Independence that people have the right and duty to throw off governments that are not affecting their safety and find alternatives that provide guards for future security in both respects. These ideas represent a relatively unexplored application of traditional liberal theory, and yet 
given the continued rise of the national security state in our own time, the future of liberty itself may hinge upon our willingness to push these principles to their fullest extent. Section 1. State-Making and War-Making The Problem of Security Historically of the State and European Realism by Luigi Marco Bassiani in Carlo Lotareri. The state forbids private murder, but itself organizes murder on a colossal scale. It punishes private theft, but itself lays unscrupulous hands on anything it wants, whether the property of citizen or alien. Quote from Albert J. Nock, 1928, on doing the right thing. Libertarianism and the State, a Critical Assessment Libertarianism has proved to be a force in almost every field of contemporary social debate. The doyens of social science can no longer dismiss the arguments produced by the leading scholars, dead or alive, of this intellectual tradition. Much of what is being discussed in this volume, being a specific libertarian contribution to the problem of security, is a part of a broader dispute on crime, punishment, and the state that belongs also to orthodox status social science. However, certain tenets of libertarianism, which after all is also a moral doctrine, render the handling of such issues very different from what is the common in the mainstream social analysis. While the latter does not question the idea that a state must be the sole supplier of law and order, libertarians take quite the opposite road, as they are ready to explore any alternative to coercion and monopoly in the production of security. Central to the libertarian framework, in fact, and the concepts of the state and the free market are two opposite poles of human experience. Rothbard nicely states this position in Power and Market. On the market, there can be no such thing as exploitation, but a conflict of interest arises whenever the state or any other agency intervenes on the market, all is harmonious. The market is the subject of thousands of publications of libertarian inclination, with Austrian economics as one of the most important traditions in our understanding of free markets, competition, and their benefits to society and individuals has been increasingly enormously. But when it comes to the other pole of the dichotomy, the state, Libertarians seem to be less sophisticated. It is our contention that one of the greatest mistakes many libertarians has been to follow a simplistic scheme of power to call state every form of political aggregation and to believe in the perennial nature of this human artifact. Commenting on such a much-welcome book dealing specifically with the modernity of the state, David Gordon, the semi-official reviewer of the libertarian community, notices by state, our author means something more limited than do contemporary libertarians like Max Weber. This general lack of perception of the state as a historically shaped institution is understandable in the light of the fact that contemporary libertarianism has developed mostly in America, a country plagued only recently and often inadvertently by statehood. Some views on the origins of the state, however, are bound to backfire against the general theory of libertarianism if the state is nothing else than political power, if it has accompanied human community since the beginning of history. How are we going to see the end of such a massive, coercive apparatus? In other words, if the state is inherently part of human experience, what should a defender of freedom bother to become libertarian? Ultimately, if the state is as old as mankind then libertarianism is just another form of utopia, though of no criminal nature. One of the central axioms of libertarianism is the idea that the same morality applies to every single person, whether acting on behalf of a public apparatus or in his individual capacity. Society and individuals must be judged as a whole if something is morally unacceptable. It should be so for everybody. In human action, Mises affirms that the most weightly revolt against reason can be found in the idea that there is no such thing as a universally valid logic. Mises calls this polylogicism. Marxian polylogicism asserts that the logical structure of the mind is different 
with the members of various social classes. Racial polylogicism differs from Marxian polylogicism, only insofar as it ascribes to each race a peculiar logic structure of mind. The rise of the state brought about a different kind of polylogicism, whose paramount importance for the general theory escapes no one, the division between the mass of subjects and the elite of political rulers. We can distinguish between three different concepts, politics, coercion, and the state. Not all politics are coercive, and not all coercive politic orders can be called states. Libertarian theory is destructive, not of political quos, politics, but of a certain peculiar order based on a monopoly of violence or of legitimate force. The most relevant example of the latter is the political order that won premise in the European during modern times, the one that we call the state. In fact, the moral separation between rulers and the subjects is a byproduct of the rise of modern politics, that is, the state. During modern times, the state has emerged because many diverse and unique historical circumstances, but one single moral doctrine has been crucial for its materialization. It is the belief according to which the ruling class is legitimized to act by any means necessary while the people at large are bound by a set of laws created by the rulers, as well as common sense morality. The state is indeed a very peculiar institution having a uniqueness that must be appreciated from a historical point of view. It was, in fact, only during the rise of the state that the previously unheard-of idea of Rassayan de Teya gained ground, both intellectually and practically, although quite correctly the name Nikio Machiavelli is to be associated with such a break between politics and morality. The Florentine was only the first of several political theorists who worked to furnish the ruling class its morally invulnerable position, and particularly Giovanni Bottetero, in his 1589 book La Regione de Statio, was first to openly argue for the safety of the state. Men may legitimately perform actions that would be considered crimes were they committed with other purposes or by people not empowered by such a noble institution. During previous times, however brutal they may have been, the viciousness of this double morality, one limited to the those acting in the name of the state and the others suitable for the general public, simply do not exist. For libertarians, not to grasp this historical fact would be a mistake of great import. In fact, since the birthmark of modern politics, political modernity being synonymous with the state is the double standard libertarians so expensive explicitly fight against, they would be missing a chance to give a sound historical foundation for their own theory. What gives libertarianism a great intellectual appeal as well is a watertight foundation. It is the very historicity of the state. It is useful to borrow the words of a historian, certainly not a libertarian, to grasp the immediate consequence of a clear, precise, and scientific perception of the state. Quote, the state is not an internal and unchanging element in human affairs for most of us in history. Humanity got by, whether more happily or not, without a state. For all its universality in our times, the state is a contingent and comparatively recent historical development, and its predominance may also prove to be quite transitory. Once we have recognized that there were societies before the state, we may also want to consider the possibility that there could be societies after the state. The fortune of Marxism as an intellectual force relied heavily on the fact that socialists rarely advance a model society. Karl Marx devoted a mere fraction of his intellectual productivity to fantasizing about the socialist ideal society, and his followers focused, rather, on the never-ending critique of capitalism. In contrast, libertarians have concentrated much of their efforts toward envisioning a future society based on non-aggression, voluntary relations, property rights, and free market exchanges, sometimes at the expense of reflections on strategy, how to get from here to there. As for the libertarian critique of existing restrictions on free markets, we may rely on some Austrian economics, or some other traditions, depending on one's tastes. 
But when it comes to the evaluation of the state, one has to rely on the past. It is, in fact, the medieval political and judicial order that existed in Europe prior to the rise of the state that one could find suggestions for a libertarian future. Before we briefly explain what we consider to be the sound interpretation of the origins of the state, the key to a realistic treatment of the problem of security, let us briefly review the all-too-fashionable schools that still command respect from the academic quarters. In particular, two related approaches are unsatisfactory, the sociological and anthropological views of the genesis of the state. One should be very suspicious of any anthropological studies of the birth of the state for various reasons. First, because although non-European cultures deserve all the scholarly attention they may get, at least as an antidote for many centuries of racism, anthropologists have a tendency to fall in love with the cultures they study and make too much of them. We owe respect to every human being and his or her heritage. However, statements like the following, typical of a certain stream of cultural relativism, are quite unwarranted. When one is reading descriptions of those who lived in ancient Buganda or ancient Polynesia, images of the Italian Renaissance or Athens in the 5th century BC come to mind. But this could be considered a venial sin in the light for what the anthropological school has to say about the hard issues. To Eli Sagan, the state may be defined as a form of society in which non-kinmanship forms of social cohesion are as important as kinmanship forms. In fact, state building was the process of kingmanship triumphing over kinship. While it seems difficult to grasp the different stages of institutional development from this vantage point, the complete absence of historical perception underlying such a postulate must be noted. It may be true that tribal and blood relations must overcome in order to approach an institutionalized system of command. This simple truth, however, is unable to account for the complexity of modern judicial organizations. Moreover, the timeless nature of the anthropological analysis could be helpful to comprehend some perennial features of human societies, but it proves futile when applied to transient, peculiar European institutional realities such as the state. One of the pioneers of this tradition, James George Fraser, asserted, quote, The continuity of human development has been such that most, if not all, of the great institutions which still form the framework of civilized society have their roots in savagery and have been handed down to us in these later days through countless generations, assuming new outward forms in their process of transmission but remaining in their inmost core substantially unchanged. Although rarely given full credit, the whole construction of the anthropological school follows the same line of reasoning drawn by Ludwig Glumplax and Marx Weber a century ago. Glumplax was one of the leading exponents of the sociological tradition. He gave the following account of the origins of the state. Quote, the state is a social phenomenon consisting of the social elements behaving according to social laws. The first step is the subjugation of one social group by another and the establishment of sovereignty. And the sovereign body is always the less numerous, but numerical inferiority is supplemented by the mental superiority and greater military discipline. One element of this definition, the anchorage to the European realism, the idea that the disorganized mass will always be ruled by an organized elite, is still persuasive, but his portrayal of the human condition appears simplistic, ignoring largely the complexity of different institutional orders and political cultures. It seems to entail the existence of a process of subjugation going on since the beginning of time. Let us notice, however, that Gumplux employs the word sovereignty, invented by John Bodine in 1576. The sociologists spoke of organizations, power politics, domination, and so on. But they actually had in mind the state, i.e. political modernity. Instead of projecting a semi-barbaric and timeless condition on Western institution as anthropologists do, the sociologists cast the state image on the hordes and tribes of all continents. This is also the most important ambiguity of Max Weber. On one side, he is one of the authors who characterizes the state 
model in totally unhistorical fashion. At the same time, however, he appears to be very much aware of the specifically modern character of the state institutions. For Weber, he states, quote, The basic functions of the state are the enactment of law, legislative function, the protection of personal safety and public order, the police, the protection of vested rights, administration of justice, the cultivation of hygienic, educational, social welfare, and other cultural interests, the various branches of administration, and last but not least, the organized armed protection against outside attack, the military complex. These basic functions are either totally lacking under the primitive conditions, or they lack any form of rational order. They are performed instead by amorphous or ad hoc groups, or they are distributed among a variety of groups such as the household, the kinship group, the neighborhood association, the rural commune, and completely voluntary association formed for this specific purpose. Weber tries to characterize the universal features of the state, but it comes palpable that only some of the specific institutions can be traced back to such a political order, and that the family, the parental group, and the union of neighbors, the rural commune, and the like are not among such institutions. It is true that Weber tries to connect the state and coercion. We hold that every state involves coercion, but not every kind of coercion makes a state. However, Weber seems to be well aware of the generally modern nature of the state when he tries to depict its emergence. The spread of pacification and the expansion of the market thus constitute a development which is accompanied along parallel lines by 1. The monopolization of legitimate violence by the political organization which finds its culmination in the modern concept of the state as the ultimate source of every kind of legitimacy of the use of physical force and that 2. The rationalization of the rules of its application, which has come to the culminate in the concept of the legitimate legal order. The book on the state has probably had the most lasting impact on libertarians. In Oppenheimer's Albert J. Nock, Murray Rothbard, and arguably the most important libertarian thinkers in the last century, had taken directly from the German sociologists and the famous dichotomy between economic means and political means. Libertarians are usually talented, at least Rothbard was, in making use of an array of different thinkers of Marxist, socialist, collectivist persuasions for their own purposes. However, Oppenheimer is in such a chaotic web of intellectual traditions that perhaps he is of no use at all. He considered himself a social liberal and put himself in very good com company. Only a small fraction of social liberals or of liberal socialists believe in the evolution of society without class denomination and class exploitation, which shall guarantee to the individual, besides political, also economic liberty of movement within the course of limitations of the economic means. That was the credo of the old social liberalism of pre-Manchester days, enunciated by Queensy and especially by Adam Smith, and again taken up by the modern times of Henry George and Theodore Herzeska. Nonetheless, the author of the Der Stadt must be judged for what he says on, this on his topic. The state, completely in its genesis, essentially and almost completely during the first stages of its existence, is a social institution forced by a victorious group of men on a defeated group, with the sole purpose of regulating the dominion of the victorious group over the vanquished and securing itself against revolt from within and attacks from abroad. Teleologically, this dominion had no other purpose than for the economic exploitation of the vanquished by the victors. This claim is that the state came out of conquest and force. As appealing as this may sound for libertarians, this vision is off the mark. In another passage, Oppenheimer hints that the dawn of the state must be recognized in the division of labor, the simple fact that some people were endowed by nature with a work character and a physical ability. The peasants become accustomed when danger threatens to call the herdsmen, whom they no longer regard as robbers and murderers, but as protectors and saviors. The herdsman has learned to capitalize on this. In other words, it was not only the direct conquest, but also failed assaults that gave birth to the state. The best defenders discovered that they could do nothing 
and be nurtured by the population until the next wave of assailants came by. The warriors were thus the soul of the rising state. Needless to say, to defend and protect other people is a perfectly legitimate function, and if some people are very good at it, they deserve all the idleness they may get. The birth of the state in Oppenheimer's enthusiastic conjecture is contradictory. Plunder, definitely illegitimate on the one side, and the division of labor, clearly legitimate on the other. Nation and state were born together and are indistinct in the German scholar's imagination. Quote, the moment when the first the conqueror spared his victim in order to permanently to exploit him in productive work was of incomparable historical importance. It gave birth to the nation-state to the right and higher economics, with all of the development and ramifications which have grown and which will hereafter grow out of them. Oppenheimer is the leading sociologist to have paved the way for the fusionist socio-anthropological model. Countless quotations from Frederick Ratzel add an exotic flavor to the book. We are thus brought into a world where social organization of the Ovambo, Huama, and other primitive cultures should teach us something about the state and its specific features. And that concludes part one of this book. This book is going to take us a while to get through, so I'm going to try to break it up so to give you guys as much time to absorb this information because these articles are very dense there's a lot of information being thrown at you you just gotta just take a deep breath slow it down and just try to understand these complex topics that are being thrown at us um there's not really much i feel like to take away from this uh episode that wasn't really already cleanly spoken out about before in the opening of this episode um you know the state we're just trying to like go through the motions of trying to figure out how the state came to be, why the state exists, you know, and there's all these people and these theologists who have actually had their, you know, ideas of why these things have come to exist. And so you see the libertarians actually kind of like going through and debunking the reasons why they believe that those theories are proved invalid. And, uh, you know, we're just kind of we're knocking those out one at a time. Boom, 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 going through. Of, you know, this person said this, this is why they're wrong there. This person said this, this is why they're wrong there. And uh, this is why I love the libertarian thought because they go through and they provide a structure for how they, how to think and how to structure your argument in such a way that it makes it almost impossible to try to counteract your argument, which should be how when you're debating with somebody, you should always try to structure your argument as too well to make it where, you know, you have axiomatic truths and foundational arguments that are not subjective because, you know, remember our uh, anti-subjectivist manifesto that, you know, consent was the only foundational thing that actually exists in this world, that consent is what the thing that exists prior to the rights being established. You know what I mean? You and I only have a right to my – I you know, I only say I can have this house because you and I can both come to an agreement. We can both consent to that this house is mine you know what i mean like that that consent has to you know exist beforehand you know the the consent is inherent to all of us everybody has the ability to consent or not to consent within each individual person and that's one of those things where rights kind of like get murky because you know there's people oh i i should have a right to education and what have you. And it's like, you know, well, if you have a right to education, that means somebody else has to provide that education for you. So therefore you are, your right is an ins another person's enslavement. And like, well, how do you pay for that other person? Well, the government pays for it. Okay. Well, how does the government fund itself? Well, the government gets taxes and that's coercive and you're not allowed to opt out of those taxes. So therefore you want to enslave all of your neighbors in order to pay for your teacher to pay for your education that you have a right to you see this circular not logic is how nonsensical it can you know starts to get when you start to actually break down these things to their fundamental base but uh the you know i like how this article is starting to, to read out how i like the very beginning the beginning just really laid out the reasonings for how governments exploit the use of violence and security you know to expropriate other individuals and 
like it talked about how the state because our state the united states has such a monopolistic monopoly on the security of the country like they had this huge conglomerate power to protect us but yet still in september 11th there managed to be a couple people that snuck through and destroyed some towers quote unquote you know if you believe that story um but yet the only re- thing that came out of that was more totalitarian control, more defense spending on, quote unquote, the protection that nobody asked for, you know, but I mean, it was like a perfect storm of bad things that happened to rile the public support in order to enact the Patriot Act. And it's like, now you start to see kind of like how, what the dangers of having this monolithic entity of protection enables the state to actually force upon you. So with this uh, Memorial Day release holiday episode, I figured that this book was probably one of the best books I possibly could have started with with this uh, episode. So uh, stay tuned. I will get around to reading more of this book in the future, probably within this next week. I got some – I'm probably definitely going to have some time set aside on one of my days off to uh, knock out some more of this book. Hopefully we can get to at least to chapter two on the next episode. All right. Well, I hope you guys all have a great holiday. Enjoy time with your family. Time is the most precious thing we have and family is even more precious. Until then, see ya.